Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are asking now that as you've met us already with your presence, that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit to especially help us to understand the Bible. And to not only understand the Bible, but to receive the teaching of the Bible. And then, Lord, would you even so give us power to obey the Bible? Uh, we ask you, Lord, for that help. We cannot get there on our own. So we seek you. We seek your Holy Spirit now as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You all can be seated. We're going to uh, look together at Romans 8, which is just beautifully read, and work on this passage together. It's a pretty convoluted passage. It's, it's got a lot of logic to it. It's got um, uh, the writer of the passage is Paul, who is uh, never, almost never immediately easy to understand. Indeed, his dear colleague Peter at one point uh, tips his hat and says, oh, Paul, there are some things very complicated in Paul, he says, and you can feel that in a passage like this. So um, we're going to get into it in just a moment, but here's, here's the thing, and here's what I'm hoping for um, as I teach from Romans 8. While the love of God is not an explicit theme in this passage, an explicit theme has to do with the power of the Holy Spirit, which is what I'll be talking to specifically and primarily. It is my hope that whether you are in an exploration phase in your life of Christianity, maybe you're in a return to Christianity phase, maybe you've been walking with the Lord, that no matter what that might be, it is my hope that you will somehow receive more in your thinking and in your heart, your person, the love of God, which is what the power of the Holy Spirit ministers. He ministers to us the love of God, which connects with our gospel reading just now. So I'm praying and hoping that whatever state you've come in and whatever's happening in your life, that there'll be a change for me and for you today as to how we are accessing, believing, receiving walking in the love of God, which is to say, the power of the Holy Spirit. A few years ago, Catherine and I and our kids uh, found ourselves in a really unique situation. I do get to travel uh, quite a bit, and we were in a, a world city, one of the great cities um, um, in the nations, and it was just one of these beautiful nights. We were actually staying with um, a really sort of impressive, high-ranking uh, couple, we were out on their veranda. It was a summer evening. And this couple had, and as I got to know them, I just realized I got to know them just that night. They were sort of living the better life. They were just living what appeared from the outside to be almost a perfect life. They had gone to the best schools in the United States. They now held prestigious government positions. They were confident, but they weren't arrogant or grating. They actually had just the right mixture of humility and hospitality with confidence and competency. By their own admission, they were not followers of Jesus. They did not believe in the fullness of the kingdom of God. And at the end of that evening, as I reflected on it, if I was not a serious Christian, I'd have said, that should be the goal of my life. In my own life and in my own version, I should try to have a life 
just like theirs. They're living a better life. Indeed, even as a serious Christian, (laughs) I felt that way. Wow, they seem financially, relationally, professionally better. I was really tempted to see them as my life goal. I could still be tempted by that. It wasn't just that night. I've got two friends who I was just with. Neither one of them living in the fullness of the kingdom of God and both of them living amazing lives. Highly successful in the American marketplace and yet really good dads, really good husbands investing their money in what seems to be perfect ways. They're just living the better life. Is that the goal of life? To become better? To have a better life? What does the Bible say to this? What does the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 say to this? I can make it simple. No. (laughs) And you have to be that simple because it's so beguiling, isn't it? it? It's so enchanting, a better life. A subtly developed, carefully designed, not ostentatious. For us Midwesterners, the Midwestern better life. Not the most expensive car, just a really good car. Not the very, very best house, just a really wonderful house. But Paul says, no, that is not the goal of life. Life is not about becoming better. Life is about, Paul says, being full of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, I want to argue he creates a contrast. He talks about it as the flesh. I talk about it as the better life. It's simply one man trying to apply what he's talking about. That we actually have a choice to make in the Christian life, even if you're already a Christian. Will I set my heart on a better life? Will I set my heart on a life of the flesh? Or will I set my heart on a life being full of the Holy Spirit? If, you, if outlines help you, and it can be helpful with this passage because it is quite intricate, I want to look at verses 1 to 8 first, the first section of this teaching out of Romans 8, the power of better. It's explicitly the power of the flesh. I'm speaking to the power of better. And then verses 9 to 13, the power of the Holy Spirit. We have two powers that are actually in immense conflict. You can watch them in conflict in national politics. You can watch them in conflict in society and culture. You can experience this conflict in your very heart. As a matter of fact, you are experiencing this conflict in your very heart, whether you know it or not. The power of better, the power of the flesh, or the power of the Holy Spirit. It is micro-reality and it is macro-reality. This is, by the way, the fundamental ministry of the Holy Spirit. So if we think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, if you have any exposure to Christianity or the traditions of Christianity, perhaps you think about the Pentecostal tradition and They kind of do the ministry of the Holy Spirit, or maybe came out of a charismatic renewal background. Some of you know what I mean by that. You think, oh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, or maybe about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, or manifestations that work out this way that you're either really comfortable with or really uncomfortable with. Well, the fundamental ministry of the Holy Spirit is the power of the Holy Spirit to apply the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, which is what we see here in Romans 8. The fundamental ministry of the Holy Spirit, I'm saying the same thing again. The fundamental ministry of the Holy Spirit is to apply the reality of the cross, Jesus overcoming sin, the world and the devil, 
and the power of the resurrection. That's the fundamental mission of the Holy Spirit. Okay, but let's back up and look at the power of better. And, and, and look in your bulletin there. If you have your Bible with you, look in your Bible. So to understand the power of better, we first have to understand the law. And I, I won't do a, a, a significant um, teaching into this because that would take the whole time. But I need to do something on it for us to understand the power of better. We have to understand the law. For the law of the Spirit, I'm looking at verse 2 now. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And here comes the cross. He doesn't say the word cross, but he's talking about the cross. He's talking about atonement, where God gave us opportunity to be at one. Atonement, at one mint, is how the word breaks down, with him. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So let's hear about a few things. The, the, the law is a very important understanding, and it was given to the nation of Israel when they became a nation. They inaugurated as a nation. They're given the law. This is how you can live your life in God. That was the understanding of a few understandings of the law. We need to be clear that we need the law. It is not sin. Paul says very clearly in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, the law is not sin. The flesh is sin. We're going to get there, okay? But the law cannot save you. Only the cross can save you. That's what he's going after in verse 4. So we're not saved by the law, but we're saved for the law. But the law, he wants to teach us, is now life in the Holy Spirit. And this is also in the Hebrew Scriptures. You also can read this in the Old Testament, where the law can be internalized. The law is actually the law that the Spirit of God is given to us, specifically after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, we're given the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're not saved by the law. That would be a confusion. We've never been saved by the law. The Israelites weren't saved by the law. Well, how were they saved? By saving relationship with Yahweh. By loving their God and knowing Him and walking with Him. That's always been the case, by the way. But we are saved for the law. For the law of the Spirit of life, verse 2, has set you free. Sorry, I'm already making babies cry. I'm so sorry. I know, okay, okay. I know I'm, I'm and I also know that I, I, I know that I'm louder. Um, and I, I am trying to, I am trying to remember I'm in Minnesota. And I am trying to be culturally sensitive. I am, I am. But I'm doing my best. All right. You guys are great. I can, I can tell you're tracking still. Um, but I do get so excited about this. Because it's just, it's, this is how we get free in our daily lives. Um, okay, so then we have to understand the flesh. So we see the flesh, and to understand the flesh, I actually want you to look at verses 1 and 8, okay? So in your text, look at verses 1 and 8. Because what Paul's doing, it's called a chiasm, that's not so important, is he wants to give you the idea in the first part and in the last part of this section, verses 1 and 8. So these, these verses 1 and 8 are related to each other. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, what a relief. If we're in Jesus, we can't condemn ourselves, nor can anyone else condemn us. There's no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh, though, cannot please God. So if you're in Christ Jesus, you can please God. There's no condemnation. But if you're in the flesh, you actually cannot please God. As a matter of fact, Paul will say you're hostile. That's the word he uses. You're hostile to God. Okay, so if you're all interested in a biblical worldview, it's very important that we understand this. 
And they go, wait a second, I need to understand the flesh. Because I'm in the flesh, I'm actually in hostility to God, but I don't have to live that way because he's saying that if I'm in Jesus and the power of his spirit, I'm actually in friendship with God. So we got to be super clear as those who live by the Bible, or if you're thinking about living by the Bible, about the flesh. What is the flesh? Well, it sounds like it's the body, right? Flesh, body. And Paul will use flesh in a few different ways. In this case, he's using flesh to describe what it means to be controlled by the sinful nature. He's not condemning the body as the body. God made the body. The body is a gift to us from God. He blesses the body. But what he is saying is that there's a way in which the flesh is also what it means to be controlled by our sinful nature. Be under the power of sin. 16th century Christian thinker Martin Luther put it this way. The sinful nature is the self curved in on itself. I think that's really helpful. I know it's metaphorical. But it's the self curved in on itself. That to live by the flesh is to live by ourselves, from ourselves, for ourselves, under ourselves, in the authority of ourselves. And that then curves us in on ourselves. I don't know if you're tracking with me, but that's hell. I don't live in your head or your heart. I only live in my head and my heart. But I don't always like my head and my heart. I don't like where my thoughts go. I don't like how I look at other people. I don't like the hateful things that I find come up. Intrusive thoughts that are generated by the sin nature. And I'm ashamed of the things I sometimes think. I'm ashamed of the things that when I'm dreaming and sleeping come into my mind. I'm ashamed of the things I sometimes say. I'm constantly repenting of the things that I say. Where I wasn't loving to that person that wasn't there in the moment. I was actually positioning myself against them so that I would look better than they would. The self curved in on the self? If that's all we've got? Oh, God, deliver us. You want to understand the atrocities of the 20th century? which line up one after the other globally. No culture is free from them. Understand the self curved in on the self, magnified by millions of selves. That's how you can begin to get your head around what happened in Cambodia in 79, what happened in Germany and Poland in the 40s, what happened in Russia, what happened in our own country in our early history. The self curved in on the self. That's the flesh. The power of better is one way to deeply understand what it means to live in the flesh. To live as if life can be better and I can make life better and I will make life better and I can actually achieve a better life is actually a way of living from the flesh. It's actually a way of living for the self. But those who live better, better, do it so well, they they can actually look altruistic. They can actually look like they're charitable and they may even be some of the best charity givers. But the fact that matters is what's animating that? What's at the heart of that Paul is saying? He's saying it's the self curved in on the self. It's not the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a broken, hungry need for God. It's the self curved in on the self. So the power of better is one way. There's several ways in which the reality of the flesh can be applied. But the power of better is not powerful enough. It can't get you to the fullness of God. As a matter of fact, to live your life in the power of better is to become hostile to God. Even though you may say the name of God, 
You may go to church regularly. It's hostile to God. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind that is set on itself and curved in on itself, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. You got to let that word sink in. Because you could think, oh, Stuart's just being exaggerative like preachers do to make a point. I'm I'm not preaching that word. That's just given to us. Hostile. So when I'm, I'm in myself, curved into myself, I'm not only trapped in myself, I'm actually in a place of, I'm against the Lord. I've actually chosen my authority over his authority, and therefore, Paul's saying, I'm, I'm against the Lord. But God's not cruel. He wouldn't leave us to a life where you'd only try to live your life by becoming better. That's actually a hellish life. That's a life in bondage. No, God's not cruel. God's going to give us the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to go there in just one moment. Let me just say a couple of things. I find this really helpful to understand how this can be subtle. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, who you know, is pastored in New York City, he helps put it this way when it comes to sort of those who live their lives for better and even have moments of nobility, which is very true, and that can confuse us because we go, there's nobility there. How could this be hostile to God? He puts it this way. He says, imagine a rebel army. That rebel army has actually set itself against a a duly elected government. So it, it may not be the perfect government, but it's a government that's been duly elected, and the rebel army is trying to take that duly elected government down. He said, would there not be soldiers in that rebel army that may be valorous, that may be unselfish, that may show incredible courage? Indeed, there may be. But it doesn't take away the fact that they are in rebellion against that which has been set in place by the people of that country. And that's helped me to get clear on the fact that there may be moments of altruism It doesn't mean that one still is not in rebellion. Before we look at the power of the Spirit, let me just help you get a bit clearer maybe in your own life about what better may look like in your own life. One of the main ways that the power of better or the life of better manifests is in a perfectionistic life. If you find yourself at all in a life where you actually are animated by the drive to be perfect, what that really is is the power of better having greater power in your life than the power of of the Holy Spirit. Perfectionism is when getting better always seems better. And you actually think that you can get better until you have the moment of despair because perfectionism cycles, okay? I can get better. I will be better. I will do better. I will get a better grade. I will get a better annual review. I will get better numbers. I will do better. I'll be a better mom. I'll be a better dad. I'm going to do better. And then you're despairing. I can't do better. Knock out of it. Knock out of it. I'll do better, I'm going to get better, I'm going to, you just cycle like that, right? Which means it's a life of a lot of anxiety and then depression. Anxiety, 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 better, 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 now I'm depressed, I can't do it. Like I, I have no other choice but to do it, now I'll just be anxious again. Shame will come into that cycle in this way. Shame is when better is not working. Shame is when you go, i got to live a life of better, and you're exposed for not being better, which will be inevitable if you have any kind of close relationship with anyone because they'll eventually figure out you're not better. It's one of the devastating realities of marriage. And not everyone's called to marriage. Maybe you've been called to marriage. If you've been called to marriage and you also have felt called to perfectionism, you've got a major problem, right? You're thinking, I'm going to be the perfect wife, I'm going to be the perfect husband, I'm going to be the perfect parent, I'm going to do it perfectly, but the fact of the matter is you're all living in the same house together, and before too long, I don't know, like maybe day four in the marriage... At the latest, 
The spouse goes, wait a second, you're actually not perfect. I mean, you were Mr. Wonderful or Mrs. Wonderful, but now you're Mr. Petty. You're Mr. Selfish. You're Mrs. Anxious. You're Mrs. Fearful. Wait a second, you're actually not perfect. And one spouse says to the other spouse, you know what, I've just figured this out. This comes in different languages, but you're not perfect. Well, if you're stuck in the life of better and the life of perfect, how do you respond when somebody says you're not perfect? Oh, I know, I'm trying. No, you're like, what are you talking about? You're defensive, right? What do you say if you're caught in shame? You say, I'm trying so hard. Don't you see how hard I'm trying? The minute you start saying that, you're stuck in shame. What's the freedom to say? If you're not living by the power of better, what are you able to say? You're right. You're so right. I'm the self curved in on the self. You're so right. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm preaching this, but I can pretty much guarantee you in the next month, Catherine's going to catch me in something I haven't done well. It catches me like I'm living a duplicitous life. That's not the right word. I'm, I'm not being duplicitous, but she'll see me fail. And she'll probably mention it to me in a loving way, because she's actually very good about that. And I probably won't remember this sermon, and so I'll probably say, can't you see how hard I'm working? Right? And this will say, didn't you preach a sermon about this up in Minnesota? And I'll say, yeah, I did. They'll say, why, why are you having a shame reaction? Just have a spirit of God reaction. Right? Better can also look like a critical spirit. If you're caught in the life of better, you can be very critical towards others, which is just one of one other manifestation of perfectionism because they're not being perfect, right? So it's kind of like, hey, if I can't be perfect myself, I kind of given up on that. Maybe I'll just expect everyone else around me to be perfect. That's how I'll do life of better. So you have this expectation that everything around you will be better and the people around you will be better. And then when they're not better, you're just so critical of them. Oh my word, a critical spirit can snap a church in two. I only think it's one or two major critical spirits in a church, critical attitudes, snap it in two. Because you know what? This church is not perfect. I mean, this is obviously a really good church. I can already see it. It's not perfect. I try to tell folks all the time at resurrection, it, you're going to find out we're not perfect, so just let me criticize her before you criticize her. Right? A critical spirit can crush a business partnership. A critical spirit can completely, just completely strip a marriage or a friendship of its joy. That's just living under the power of better. Or how about when the critical spirit goes internalized? So then we're in self-scrutiny all the time. Maybe you don't externalize your critical spirit, you've internalized it. And you're just constantly, constantly watching yourself and criticizing yourself. That's all the power of better. You want to see the power of better animated? Talk to young parents. If you're young parents, you're thinking, hey, I know I can't live under the power of better, but I'm going to raise kids who can live under the power of better. I'm going to raise perfect kids. Isn't that what parenting is all about? Raising perfect kids, right? I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Raise perfect kids? No, actually, you're not supposed to raise perfect kids. Heaven forbid that you try to raise perfect kids. That's not Christianity, they're not perfect. You're trying to raise kids who are full of the Holy Spirit. You're trying to raise children who know how to call upon their Heavenly Father, who know that when they sin, when they lie, when they mistreat somebody, when they speak out of turn, when they reject authority, that they have a Heavenly Father who will forgive them of their sins and fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit and the cross. Amen? Parents have got to get free from thinking they can somehow raise perfect children. It crushes them. It crushes you. But you can raise full of the Holy Spirit children. It's a promise Paul gives us. Look, let's look at it. The power of the Spirit. 
Verses 9 to 13, this is so good. Okay, we had the hard news, <laughs> but there's, uh, the good news is better. You, however, oh, you got to just like love that however. Oh, I mean, aren't you ready for the however? I mean, I just dragged you through perfectionism, self-scrutiny, shame, right? Aren't you ready for the however? Give us the however. You, however, are not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. <laughs> Hallelujah. If you know Jesus, if you submitted your life to him, if you've asked him into your heart, if you said that you are Lord and Savior, if that's true about you, then you're in the Spirit. The Spirit that raised him from the dead. That's what you have. That's what you have in Jesus. You're all rich. And most of you don't know it. You're all crazy trust fund babies and you're walking around like you're poor. You have everything in Jesus, the Bible tells us. And you have his Holy Spirit. You have the power of the Spirit. Look what he says in verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Dwell is a very important word. I don't have time to go into it. Super important Bible word, dwell. It dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. What is he saying? He's saying this. It's six words. The resurrected one lives in you. Six words. The resurrected one lives in you. And that's a prayer. It's a prayer I want to teach you this morning. As a matter of fact, I often do this. I'll put my hand on my heart when I'm feeling the power of better and I'm stuck in shame or perfectionism or critical attitude or self-scrimp. I put my hand on my heart and just go, the resurrected one lives in me. That's what the Bible teaches. The resurrected one lives in me. Okay. I can repent. I can humble myself. If you're comfortable with that, just, just put your hand there. If not, it's okay. You don't have to, but just put your hand there. And let, let's just say it together. Uh, the resurrected one lives in me. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the cross means. That's what the Bible teaches the Father is the resurrecting one. The Son is the resurrected one. The Spirit is the spirit of resurrection. Oh, it's so good. Because Jesus is resurrected from the dead and invites us into his life, he then invites us into the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We get invited into that life. And Jesus puts that life within us. The better life is like a train. The power of the spirit life is like a toddler. Here's what I mean. There's a place where I run at home, and there's a train track, and it goes right by this gorgeous meadow. And I often think about this train and how the train, and I have a pretty lively imagination, think, oh, that train can't get into the meadow because it's always on the track. It can't hop off the track and go into the meadow. If it did that, it, <clears throat> it couldn't get there, right? There's no track in the meadow. The meadow's beautiful. The meadow's wild. The meadow's colors. And right now, it's just beautiful and glorious, right? The life of better is like the life of a train. You're always on a track. You're always going to the same place. And it's better, 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 better. And it's a super narrow life. It's a super restricted life. You can only do one thing. You can only go to one place. It's the life of the flesh. It's the life curved in on itself. But compare that train to a toddler. 
You set a toddler into a meadow, what are they going to do? <laughs> right? I mean, they're going to throw themselves in their backs. They're going to be pulling out flowers. They're going to be running around. That toddler, like the power of the life and the spirit. That toddler can enjoy the meadow. It can smell the flowers. It can build a fort. All the things a train can never do. Way too many of us, we are Christians who are living like a train. Boom, 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 boom. Narrow, restricted, exhausted, bored. The life of the Spirit is like a toddler life. That's what it looks like. That's what it's like. So how do you apply this as we conclude? It's actually in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Paul is just... (laughs) Hostility, death. Okay, 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 we got it, we got it. I don't want it, I don't want the flesh. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Earlier Christians called this mortification. What they simply meant by that was putting to death the reality of sin. You can put to death sin in your life. You have that power in Jesus. Not by yourself, but in Jesus. You have the power to put sin in. So what does that mean? Get people to pray for you. Like, expose yourself to prayer. Say, I need you to pray for me that I might live by the Spirit and not by the power of better. I need you to pray for me in my shame, in my perfectionism. You need others to pray for you. That might include the laying on of hands where someone just puts their hand on your shoulder. They connect with you physically in an appropriate way. And they pray that God would meet you in the reality of the Bible. That is very powerful. And yet, very few of us do it. So get prayer. That will help you put sin to death. Second, I would encourage you, if you're particularly locked in a certain perfectionism or shame or another manifestation of the power of better, I would encourage you to consider a day of fasting, even in this Easter season, which isn't what we usually do. But sometimes the Bible trumps what's happening in a certain liturgical season. You might need a day of fasting. We say, Lord, I am stuck in this particular power of better, and I am hungry for you to free me. So I'm going to have some spiritual hunger or some habit hunger, if you can't fast from food, for a day. And I'm going to ask you during this day, would you please free me from this? I want to name it as the power of better. Would you please free me? Take a day of fasting in the next week or two weeks. And finally, repent. Repent of your self-curved in on itself. Repent of living on the train track rather than the toddler in the field. Repent. Repent and believe the gospel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.